Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. 106 is the time here at KSL News Radio. You're listening to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. In just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Greg Scordis regarding jury selection and what the process is like, how juries are uh, selected as we watch in the trial of uh, Officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. The jury is being selected uh, right now. It's a process which uh, very well may play out over a, a number of weeks. Before we get to that conversation, though, uh, I need to uh, share with you some numbers and a little bit of uh, interesting information coming from the Utah Department of Health. During the commercial break, uh, I got my hands on the, the new case numbers for today. Uh, real quickly, 560 new cases, uh, additional from yesterday, uh, 20,737 vaccines administered yesterday. Uh, the the seven-day rolling average for positive tests right now stands at 529. And the seven-day average for percent positive uh, of tests over tests is 4.24%. That's a very encouraging number. 187 Utahns hospitalized right now with COVID-19. And this last number has to do with the deaths. So I want to share with you exactly what has come through from the Department of Health. They are reporting an increase of 13 deaths since yesterday. Uh, Total number of deaths here in the state of Utah during the span of this COVID-19 pandemic, 1,990, 13 additional since yesterday. But Here's the interesting part. Nine of these deaths, and this is a note coming directly from the Department of Health, nine of these deaths occurred before February 1st. Nine of these deaths occurred before February 1st. And there are asterisks, you know, indicating that there's more information below. So we scroll down here to the bottom, and the asterisks here read, we have no further public information due to medical privacy laws, but this is a tragic reminder that we must continue to be vigilant about public health precautions. I have no additional information. I will not speculate beyond what is provided here. Simply sharing it uh, as it was delivered and pointing out that uh, a a note like this has not accompanied these numbers uh, in the past. Uh, So uh, interesting stuff there uh, appears to be some sort of uh, uh, information. Uh, It also indicates that uh, a, a male, one of the 13 additional deaths is a male between the ages of 1 and 14. A Salt Lake County resident who was hospitalized at the time of death. I'll, I'll have to uh, touch base with producers and fact checkers, but I, I believe uh, I, I believe that's the first time we've seen uh, a death in that age category between uh, 1 and 14 as reported by the Department of Health. So that's that. That's the update. Uh, we'll follow those numbers throughout the day. If uh, if we get any more clarity or information on that, we'll certainly bring it to you. Uh, with that said, let me shift 
gears back to the the topic at hand. And welcome to the program, Greg Scorda. Sir, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Lee. Nice speaking with you. I, uh, I'm always grateful to you for making your making your expertise available to us, uh, in particular on, on this day as we watch the jury selection in the Derek Chauvin trial take place in the death uh, of George Floyd. Now, I won't ask you to weigh in uh, necessarily on the specifics of this case, but the, the, the juncture in the process in which they find themselves now, this jury selection, has always fascinated me. And, you know, you see it happen in, in TV shows and on movies and all. But uh, I, I just ask you, someone who has seen this uh, for, for decades, what w- talk to us about the process. How does how does how does uh, jury selection commence? What are the first steps? So it, it's kind of weirdly we call it selecting a jury. But but really, when you if you ever watch the process, we sort of eliminate a jury so that the, the, the judge will bring in. In a case like this, probably two or three hundred jurors, maybe even much more because of the publicity. And then they will go through and decide which people uh, cannot be fair, which people have already formed an opinion, which people might have some information about the case that they're not entitled to because it's going to come out during trial. And and some people may just have health issues. And so those people will be eliminated and then will eliminate more and more and more until you can get to a point where you can seat 12 jurors who can sit down, spend a couple of weeks, watch this case unfold, and make a decision based on the evidence that's presented at the trial and not based on something they saw on the news or something they read about in the paper or something their friend told told them. But, But basically sit down and say, I'm willing to judge this case based on the facts and make a decision based on what's presented to me and not on any extraneous information that I might have. Is it possible for is, is it possible for certain cases to be so large, to be so widespread in terms of uh, the news coverage and discussion in communities and around kitchen tables, uh, to, that it becomes almost impossible to find uh, someone without uh, you know an opinion or a predetermined opinion or view? And in that case, what happens? It's difficult, but but you and I know, Lee, that there have been some very high-profile cases, O.J. Simpson, um, other sort of infamous stars and and people of some note that have been uh, subject to to trials. And so it's difficult, And, and it's not even enough to say that the jurors know something about the case, but if they're willing to to uh, to be fair, to listen to the evidence, to 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 conclude their deliberations based solely on what they hear at the trial, what they see and, and hear over the next couple weeks, they can be seated as a juror. So it might seem daunting. It might seem almost like you say impossible, but they'll get a jury in this case. They'll get people that are willing to sit down, hear the facts and and come to a decision based on what they hear. Is it true, as I've seen in, in movies sometimes, that the prosecution and the defense, that they have a, a certain number of, like, no questions asked, uh, veto cards they can play it from time to time? Yeah, so once the judge goes through the, the questioning of the jurors and and decides who should be stricken um, just for for bias or information that they have that they shouldn't have or whatever, that they can strike that. And then each side, the prosecution and the defense, can strike other members of the panel for whatever reason they want. Um, They can say, 
uh, well, this person that just gives me an uneasy feeling, or this person may have uh, some family in law enforcement, and maybe I don't want to, uh, you know, have that bias brought into the to the courtroom. But you can you can basically exclude jurors for any reason you want. You can't do it based on their race or ethnicity. But otherwise, people don't really ask, why did you strike that juror? Why did you take that juror off the panel? They'll, they'll agree that the attorneys can come to those conclusions themselves, that they can sit down and try to decide who's going to be fair, who's going to be sort of more sympathetic to their side, so to speak. But, I mean, having done about 200 jury trials, I can, I can say this, Lee, that a lot of it is just pure guesswork. Yeah. How, how much time? How much time do you put into uh, jury selection, uh, either as a prosecutor or a defense attorney? How much of the, if you could put it in terms of percentage, uh, pre-trial preparations go into preparing to, uh, you know, evaluate and you know exercise your veto uh, abilities of the jury? So, uh, surprisingly, uh, not a lot of time. I mean, in a case like this, the judge will almost certainly have sent out the, the jury panel a questionnaire. Um, and, and I've done questionnaires that have been maybe 15 or 20 pages long. So each side will have had a lot of time to cull through that information and come to some decisions so that when we actually get to, to court, which presumably is starting about right now, uh, they can they can make their uh, selections or their eliminations, if you will, based on all that they've, all the information that they've had for some time by these jury questionnaires. It's not uh, so much like you might see on on a movie where the judge just asks the jurors questions in front of the lawyers. Sure. That happens in smaller cases and misdemeanor cases, but in high profile cases or cases that are going to take a long time, they'll usually do a a full-on questionnaire and have the jurors sit down and fill that out before they even get to the court. And each side will have that information available to them, and then they can make their decisions uh, based on that. Uh, well, listen, Greg Scortis, I'm grateful to you for your time, your expertise, and uh, sharing that with uh, the audience here. Uh, we'll continue to follow this and likely knock on your door here again for some explanation and insight. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. All righty. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. When we return, we'll be joined by uh, Salt Lake City Mayor Erin Mendenhall. The Racial Equity and Policing Commission, which she formed some time ago, has released its first report. It contains a handful of recommendations. We'll, sh- we'll speak with the mayor, ask her what she thinks about the recommendations, and uh, how and how soon she thinks they may be implemented. That's next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.